Okay, guys, this is the way we're going to um, do our Molly report, so we hope to keep it moving, and um, we don't want any of you to get bored, but we've got a lot of stuff we want to tell you. Matter of fact, you just need to kind of ask us questions, and maybe if we have some time at the end, I don't know how that's going to go, um, we might have a time for some questions and answers. I'm going to share just a little bit about the people that we worked with and how we got to Molly and why we go to Molly. And then we're going to um, watch a short video. The video is about nine minutes long. And then Nan is going to share some of our experiences that we had actually on the field day to day. And then Dwayne's going to share about storying because we had a lot of different things going on at the same time, even though we were all on the same team. So to begin with, I wanted to share, most of you were here probably when we had Judy Miller back in June to come and visit with us. She spoke to the adults over in um, the new building. And she is the um, spokesperson and she is the in-charge missionary with the International Mission Board living in Mali. She was in Benin. She is a career missionary. And she is in charge of what we call the Oral People Strategy Team. It used to be called the West Africa One Story Team. But when the International Mission Board rearranged everything, they changed their name. It's the same group of people. It's the same job description, but the name is different. Basically what Judy, who is a single woman, does is she coordinates a group of young adults. You have to be under 30 to be a one-story um, person or a oral people. They call them special ops, but we can't call it that on the Internet because that raises red flags for military stuff. And so everything has to be screened when you're dealing with Africa because there's just a lot of things going on um, that we kind of take for granted in the United States. But anyway, she works with the young adults, and one of the blessings of going and working with her is the young adults that we get to meet. We spend a lot of time in the trucks um, with as we travel back and forth. The trucks that you will see, they're Toyota Hilux, I think is, is the brand or name or whatever you call them. And uh, they're all four-wheel drive because you have to be able to go in really hard places. And um, all the kids have to learn how to change tires and make do like um, the worst truck, which is the one that Scott uses, which he's the cowboy missionary from Texas. He's 22, and he's the main one that Dwayne went storing in the villages with, plus an interpreter. Like his uh, battery was held in place with a belt, like a, a men's belt. And so we were fascinated to take it and get it repaired on a Monday after we left. But they make do, and they go, and they go in hard places, and they do it with such a God attitude. Um, our days would start very early in the mornings. Most of the time we were having breakfast at 6.20, 6.30. And we needed to be loaded at the trucks, usually around 7.15. And Judy's famous saying every morning, look around, is your team here? Well, our team was always there. Now, we had to wait on some other people, but our team, of course, there were just three of us. You know, but we're like, we're here, we're here, we're accounted for, everybody's good. And so every morning we started off, we'd have like a briefing time. Here's what we're going to do today. Here's the village that we're going to. This is what we're anticipating. Um, and then in the evenings, every evening, we would get back to our rooms, um, usually between 8.30 and 9 o'clock that night. So it's very, very long days, um, but you get to do such an awesome array of different things and different experiences and working with different people. The time in the trucks, we would spend, um, okay, tell me about how you got here. What is this cowboy from Texas doing in West Africa, and how did he get there? Um, and then he's coming back, and he's, he's looking at, either going, um, working in a ministry position at a ranch, like he's, a, he's like a real cowboy, not like a just wear the clothes cowboy. And some of his prayer cards are down here. Um, but, or getting a Ph.D., and I'm like, okay, you know. And, this, and his love for the Lord that he would put his life on hold for two years to go into a village um, to be able to tell people the story of Jesus. And then he is in a, what we call a second-generation village. And when we were singing the Elijah song, and it talked about the dry bones becoming his flesh, and I thought, you know, that's what's happening right now in our second-generation villages in West Africa. Because we have had, they were girls that came before. They spent their two years, and in that two years, they, translate, they learned the language of the people. They translate that, the Bible, certain stories, usually about 20 to 24, into that language, record it, because these are oral people. They don't read and write. So everything is oral. So they, over those two years, they learn the language. They translate, working with Wycliffe Bible um, translators to make sure there's no accuracy, um, no inaccuracy in the work because it's going to be recorded. It's going to be passed on. And then the second generation, they come home. 
Their job is done. The second generation goes back in and does like discipleship. And that's what Scott is doing. And, you know, when the girls went over the first time, there's no believers in the village. They live among them. They stay there for two years. They get malaria. You know, they, they go through births. They go through deaths. They go through weddings. And then they come home. And then, thank the Lord, through our international mission board, we're able to send another journeyman over. And for this case, Scott, he goes back in and he picks up where they left off. And there's maybe a handful of believers, but they've heard the stories of Jesus. I don't know how many people said, oh, we have heard this story from Amanda, or we have heard this story from Connie, or we have heard this story from Scott. And so it's so cool because you see fruit beginning to happen in places who had never heard the name of Jesus. And so it's such an awesome experience. Um, The hardest part of the trip is the traveling. You leave here. It takes you a couple days to get there seems like you spend forever in airports or either on an airplane, and then the same thing coming back home. I think when our plane left the um, runway of Molly, it was 26 hours till we hit our driveway. And so it's a long time. You're not sitting in a plane all that time. The flights are only like eight, nine hours. But the traveling in between and the waiting and the check-in and all that sort of thing. So it was a wonderful experience. Um, <clears throat> the rest of our team was dentists, two dentists from Nashville, who are veteran um, dentists who go to work with Judy and her teams. This is how many years? 20 years they've been going. And I think one of them has missed one year. And so they know how to do things in the bush. And so we just towed all the tools and we clean all the tools and we pack the tools and we pack them up and do it all again the next day. Um, We made six different clinics. We had three in one section of the country. Then we traveled like four hours and did three in another section of the country. So you spend some time on the road. Um, nothing is wasted. Your bathroom stops are in the bush like we do in these years. But the people are so very, very open to the gospel. And so it, it's just so rewarding to be able to go and to be part of something so much bigger um, than anything we've ever been a part of before. So let's go ahead. John, if you can turn the lights off. And instead of um, me ranting and raving, we're going to give you some pictures so when Nan gets up to tell you can have kind of a visual image of uh, telling the story in Mali, West Africa. Let it ever 
tell you a little bit. I mean, you got to see a lot, so if you have questions, something you saw, you might want to ask that later. But um, in case you haven't heard, um, last year we went as dental assistants as well. And this was with the same same two men from Nashville. And we were just really tickled to get to go again this year. But they brought two other ladies from their church. So our team was bigger. Um, they brought Becky Couts, who's a retired missionary to Benin, so she was very helpful in speaking French, which is used a lot there, and uh, dealing with um, the people. And then Babs was a sister to one of the dentists, and she's been his assistant for 30 years. So we got to mix up, instead of us doing all the dental cleaning, the tools and whatever, uh, they got to do that as well. And um, while once some were cleaning, others were out in the bush telling stories. Um, so it was a real good working relationship. And then the little girl that looked Filipino, uh, if you noticed her, she is, by the way. She was born in America, but her parents come uh, from the Philippines. And she is one of the returning girls that was there last year and had gone home. So she and Casey, the other girl that you saw in the picture, had gone back just because uh, they knew we were going to the Maninka people that they had worked with before. So it was really good to get to see former girls, and then get to meet all the new people that were over there. Um, anyway, um, I, I could tell you, you know, just the lowdown of every day what we did, but that would probably get boring. But um, any type of medical missions, whether it's, you know, dental or whatever, opens the door. You know, that's just to get your foot in the door so you can tell the story. But by doing the medical missions, they sense the love of God through you. They want to know why you're there. And then while you're there, at least in this part of the country, you can share. And the people are so willing. As you saw while we were doing a dental clinic, before they can come in and have their teeth worked on, one of the, one of the young people were out there telling the stories. And this was their way. For some of them, it was the first time they'd gotten to share. They just hadn't had the opportunity to go do that. And so some of them were getting to share for the first time. And then Dwayne and some of the other men, because, again, we were a large group, could go out and visit with the townspeople and sit under trees and tell stories. And some of the women got to do the same. But um, going on a medical team opens the doors, to, um, and it, it meets physical needs. These people... Um, of course, had bad teeth, um, bad gums, and that's due to their poor diet and to their, they don't have any oral hygiene. They don't use toothbrushes or toothpaste or floss or whatever, so their teeth are bad, and a lot of them have gum disease, so the teeth are just barely hanging in there. Um, and then because of that, then many of them have infections, and if the infection's not taken care of, then it becomes a health issue as well. So. You're doing a lot of behind-the-scenes stuff or a lot of preventative-type things by taking out the teeth, you know. You hate to pull every tooth in their head, although most of them need that. Um, but you're preventing them from becoming sick later on and not being able to get the help that they need. Um, and then the other thing, um, not only are you meeting their physical needs in that way, you're meeting a financial need as well. Now, I know it probably will hurt some people's feelings to know we did charge for them to get their teeth pulled. But it was like $2.50? 50 cents. Okay. Anyway, I, I always get the monies confused. But anyway, 
um, you feel like you want to take ownership. You hate to give them something for nothing. But in doing that, they would pay, well, most of them would never get dental care, first of all. They can't afford, in the capital is where they would get the best dental care. And to even make that trip would be costly. It would cost them an arm and a leg, probably a month's wages, to get to the dentist. And then that wouldn't even include getting the painkillers and the uh, antibiotics afterwards to take care of the infection that they might have had in their teeth. And then, at the end of the day, we turn around and give that money back to either the chief or to the director of the clinic that we're allowed to have. And as you saw, some of them are in the bush and we're out just doing it in the open, and so it would probably be given to the chief. But in others, they've opened up their best, which might be a dirty clinic, for us to do it in. And there, we would give it to the clinic director. And this is done in front of all the people that are there. So we're giving it back saying, use this to help your clinic or use this to help the people of your village. So you're killing two birds with one stone. You're helping the people, but then you're giving it back to the community so that they can be helped again and again and again. And uh, again, not only are we doing that, we're giving them the medicines they need to take care of their problems later on. Um, so it's a win-win situation. Um, and. A lot, we were told lots of times that the people, if they did go to not the capital but to a local village where someone may claim to be a dentist and really isn't, they might offer to pull a tooth, but it wouldn't be deadened, and so they've had a bad experience. And then another thing that Judy Miller, one of the last um, emails we got from her since we were there, said a lot of people from those countries believe that their soul is in one of their teeth. And so they're afraid to get their teeth pulled because they'll lose their soul. And the, the funny thing about that is they don't know which tooth it is. So uh, I, it was so, some of the people that had them pulled last year were living proof that they didn't lose their soul by having teeth pulled. So uh, there were some more willing people this year. And then, as I said, we met physical needs, we met financial needs. Um, but also spiritual needs, because no one left there without hearing a story from God's Word. And many of them heard many stories, and they're willing to listen as long as you will tell. So um, we do get to, to, to share God's love with them. Um, in one of the first villages we went to, uh, we went to two new ones right off the bat, and so we didn't know what to expect. And we didn't have a lot of people come to those. But um, for those that we did help, they were thankful. And the first man we helped was waiting on us when we got there. And his face was swollen, so you knew he had infection. And he was in terrible pain. And we were actually going to his village the next day, but he didn't want to wait. So he walked there. He usually rode a motorcycle, but his tooth hurt so bad, the jarring on the motorcycle, he couldn't do that. So he walked, and he was the first person in line to get his tooth fixed. And he went and laid down after he was um, taken care of, took some pain medication and some antibiotic, and came back later, because this is the village we were dancing in. Since we had spare time, we stayed around, and that was the first time we got to dance. So that was a new experience for us, and it was a, a good thing. But this was also the, the day that um, Becky Couts, the, the lady that came with the dentist, is also a nurse. So we were going to do wound care, and I was kind of anxious to see how that would go and be a part of that. Um, so she was called to a hut, and we didn't really know what was going on. I guess they were going to ask if this lady, if the dentist would do her any good. Um, and when Becky came back, she told us, this, we, can't do, we can't do anything for this lady. She needs to see a specialist. So some of our, she went along with um, the lady's mother and the lady's um, uncle or brother and anyway loaded them up and took them to the nearest village and what she had told us was um, when she went in the hut the stench of infection was so bad it was hard to take and of course then getting in the truck and riding with her was even worse but the lady also she came out and we got to see her and again she had a scarf draped around her face so you wouldn't see it but her face had been eaten away by an infection, one whole side. So um, we were very thankful. We took up an offering and sent along with 
her to because we knew that she couldn't get medical help probably without money and her family wouldn't have money. So we were thankful to take up an offering and send that with her. And I'll go ahead and finish the story of her even though it took every day we would get a report. She was taken back to um, a village and they said, well, you need to go to the capital. Well, in the capital is um, our senior missionary, uh, Lynette Thompson, and she took her to six different hospitals. And before someone, you know, they would say, no, you need to see this person. No, you need to see this person. And finally, they found someone who knew exactly what her problem was. And it was an infection that was eating away her skin. It probably started as a, an, uh, an infected tooth or gingivitis that had gone untreated. Actually, they said, I think she had gone to see someone and... Um, they, they didn't know how to medicate it, and so she had been sitting in her hut. She had, has two children, had just lost a baby a couple of months before. Her husband was away somewhere else working. And so um, anyway, thank goodness a French group is going to take care of her for, and at no cost. Um, she um, probably will make it. We didn't think she would live. And probably if we hadn't seen her and gotten her to the doctor, she would not have lived. But it's, it's just amazing that a tooth, you know, would cause someone to lose their life. So that's how important it is for them to get the dental care. And I think they will see that when this lady gets to come back to her village. But they're even going as far as uh, doing a, pro, you know, will pay up to even having a prosthesis made to, to cover her face. But um, she's going to have to live outside the capital in what would be like a leper colony, only it's for other people. I guess because of the dental problems over there and the lack of hygiene, there are other people with the same kind of infection and same rotting away of the faces. But uh, anyway, she's through God's grace, she's going to get the help she needs. And then that reminds me of when we were doing another village. Um, remember that last year reported on a lady who had a locked jaw. She came to us one night, and her husband was just frantic and said she could become a believer, um, you know, if God would heal his wife. And she couldn't even open her mouth, and she had a nursing child, and she could only get grains of rice in her mouth. And uh, we gave her antibiotics and stuff that night, and then her husband allowed us to take her with us to a different village that next day. And they got her mouth open just enough to pull what they thought might be the tooth that was causing the problem because it was turned sideways and rubbing against her cheek and it caused an infection and it caused her jaw to lock. Anyway, make a long story short, we went back by her village, just stopped on the edge of the road. We didn't know her name, didn't know where she lived, and we stopped and our interpreter said, does the lady who had the locked jaw live here? Is she anywhere around? And it was no time till we saw a young lady, all smiles, come running to the cars. And she got to reunite with the dentist and um, show them how much better she was. And again, this girl might have ended up like the one who had lost her whole side of her face if her tooth hadn't been helped. So we were very thankful for that. Um, the differences you can make, you know, again, as Judy said, there were differences made last year. Because I mean, this year when we went back, there being some believers because of the work of these young people, um, because of Judy Miller's good reputation, there were clinics that opened up in Bamako for us to do uh, work right there in the city. And these were from displaced people who can't live out in the desert anymore because of um, fighting frictions and fightings. Um, so they've come to the capital, and we got to work on their teeth. And... There was a group called the Sunny Group that some of our girls are working with, and there was a hidden group. And even though some of these people showed up to see their friends, these girls that are going out ministering to them, uh, they showed up just to talk to them and to speak to us. And one of these was a man who looked like a Touareg man, only had light skin, but he dressed that way. Very well-educated, spoke English, and wanted the opportunity to speak to other Americans just to make his English better. And so they are making inroads just because, I mean, and that's evident just by friends showing up. Even though they didn't have dental work done, um, it showed that they cared about them. Um, in one village that we went to before, 
um, we thought we would have a lot of people show up, and the opposite happened. And the reason for that was the imam, who is the mosque spiritual leader, knew that we were coming, knew that we had had a big crowd the year before, and he threatened the people and said, if you go, you will be disowned. You know, you will no longer be a Muslim. We will not help you out if you go to the dental clinic. So they're under that kind of pressure from their own people, too. Um, I think I'm going to finish up and let Dwayne, because I know he's going to story. So if you have any questions about anything I've talked about or that you saw in the movie, feel free to ask. This has been my uh, fifth trip to Africa, my first trip to Mali, and it was by far the most satisfying trip um, that I had taken abroad on a mission trip. Also been to Bulgaria in 2003, and this by far was the most satisfying trip we had been on. Um, I was anxious to go back. Uh, Judy came back and told the stories about what had happened last year, and, it's, and I wanted to go back and be a part of that. And um, the Maniki people are just—it's a whole different situation. Um, there's a couple of reasons why. First off, Maniki people are, are marginal Muslims. We definitely saw some of the animistic uh, religion. Uh, voodoo is very big, not like Haiti big, but very big in the area we were at. Uh, for instance, we prayed. One of the pictures you saw, we were praying for a man by the tree with our hands on him, praying for him. And his mother truly believed that this man was demon-possessed. I had no doubt that he was. He had been bargaining with the uh, local voodoo doctor to, to get profits and things. And somebody put a curse on him. And uh, he was considered crazy and demon-possessed. And we had the opportunity to pray for him. And we sort of prayed God delivered him. So we had that animistic religion going on. But these folks were marginal Muslim. Now, they still heard the, you heard the prayer calls. You just heard what Annette said from the, about the imam um, objecting to us being in the villages. But, but they were marginal enough to where we had the opportunity to openly tell stories about Jesus Christ. And that was a huge, huge difference. But, with, and, but the other thing was, the Maniki people, as compared to the Tory people, were just so much more friendly and more open. I mean, it's just the bottom line. Uh, they were very welcoming into their homes, into their compounds, and that gave us the opportunity. So it was my privilege to be the main storyteller, and Judy had me wear the man dress. Uh, that's what they call it, the man dress. Sometimes they call it a gown. And you'll notice in the video, they didn't wear this. This was considered ceremonial wear, what you might wear at a wedding or as a traveler or something like that. So when I wore this, I was indicated as a guest in the village. They saw that. But the big inroad that I had was the thing that I wrestled with. My wife looks so young, and I just don't look that young. And one of the reasons I don't look that young is this, my gray hair. But my gray hair gave me a tremendous in with the people there. I experienced some of this in Niger amongst the Torig people, but amongst the Maniki people, gray hair is a sign of an elder. And I was treated with unbelievable respect. Um, I would walk in and instantly, no matter who was sitting in the best chair, it was offered to me. If I was carrying something across the compound, instantly someone took up and used the word pastor, no, pastor, no, and would carry that. So it really gave me an inroad to talk with the people. Um, Scott blew my mind. I knew I was going to be telling stories. But Scott, the first day, said, okay, you're the elder, so you take the lead. I said, you've got to be kidding me. Are you going to tell me how to do this? No, just go ahead. Just, you know, start in. Use the interpreter, of course, to speak. And so we did, and we, had a, uh, we did not have one bad experience. But it went something like this, and I'll, I'll kind of give you an input. Um, we had several intros we would use. One of them would be, you know, just simply through the interpreter, how are you, how's your family, what do you do for a living, just what you would do if you're visiting someone in America, okay? And then, and then eventually you'd get around saying, there's something I can pray for you about, and they might pray for peace, might pray for help. And you would try to think of a Bible story that would fit that, and then you'd say, I know a story from God's Word that talks about that. Would you mind if I told you a story from God's Word? And we were never told no. Never told no. And the, in fact, the, the attention level was so intense as these people listened to the story of God. Um, one of the ones I used was is that I tell stories in America uh, from God's Word. That's I'm a storyteller. Would you mind if I told you a story about God's Word? Another intro we would use is this. We'd walk in and say to the people, and it was, this is very interesting. Um, we would say to the people, they're sitting there, the men, it was always men, um, 
Um, we know that you are an oral culture, that you pass your history down by telling stories. And, and do you know a story about your culture that, that, you could, you know, that, that you would share with me? And very often, if they were under 35 or 40, they'd say, oh, no. No, we, we are not qualified to tell these stories. You must go to an elder to hear these stories. And so we, we found a couple of elders who are willing to tell the wonderful stories and I would follow up with, I know some stories from God's Word and I'd like to share a story with you. And what I'd like to do is, in the story, an average Bible story is about four minutes long. I'd just like to tell you something how it would go. Um, one, of the, one of the favorite stories we used was about the man in the barns because a lot of these people, unlike the Tory people, they were herdsmen. These people were farmers. And you'll notice, by the way, if you saw any pictures of animals, guys, did you notice they weren't lean? Food's not that big of a problem in Mali's, particularly coming out of the wet season. Now, in the dry season, it'll be a little bit worse. No, they didn't have abundance of food, but we, we did not see a lot of evidence of hunger. And you certainly saw that in the animals. And so I would open up, I said, you know, this is a story from God's Word. And I would say, one day, Jesus was telling a story to those who were following Him. He told the story of a farmer. And this farmer had a crop planted, and that particular year, there were many, many rains. And the rains were great and the crops grew. And it came time for the harvest and the man had a tremendously large harvest. So as he harvested his food, he said to himself, what shall I do? The barns that I have will not hold all the food that I have. What can I do? He thought for a moment and he said this, I know what I will do. I will tear down these barns and I will build bigger barns. And that's exactly what he did. And then he said to himself and said, I now will eat, drink, and be merry. And then I said, I would sit back, he will sit back, and I would lean back like this, and I will eat my food, and I will be happy. And that very night, God came to him. And God said to him, you are a fool, because this very night, you're going to die. And then, who will all these things belong to that you possess? Then Jesus said these words. He said to this man, or to the people that were standing there, He said to the people and said, Such it is with a man who is rich toward himself, but not rich toward God. And this is a story from God's Word. So it took about three or four minutes to tell the story. And then you'd do this. Then you'd ask this question. You'd say, So what did you like about the story? And so they would think a moment, and oh, they love to talk. And, but it wasn't just frivolous talk. They really would, would think it through. And invariably with a story, because they were farmers, they would say, oh, we like the part that the crop was so large. They had such a large crop. We like the fact that the story was about a farmer, like we are farmers. And then I'd say something like this. I would say, well, what was hard for you in the story? Now, this was very hard for them because they know the Bible is the Word of God. Just They, they equate it with the Koran as a holy book. And so they had a hard time saying there was something that they struggled with in the Bible. But in this particular story, they would say something like, you know, it was hard that the man died. Uh, It was hard that God called this man a fool. And when they said that, I would say something like, well, why do you think God called the man a fool? And we would follow a line of questioning like that for a while. And then we'd get back and we'd say this, well, what does this teach us about man? And invariably, they picked up like that. They'd say, the man was selfish. The man should have... Isn't it amazing? In America, we'd have missed it. And I told them that. I said, you know, it's funny. In America, we, the Maniki people, I said, you Maniki people are so generous. If I come to your compound, you give me food. In America, they do not. We are a very selfish people. But instantly, they picked up on how that this man was selfish. And they had a hard time with that. And, and, and they said, instantly picked up and said, that's a hard thing. The man was wrong. It teaches about mankind that this people were very selfish. Now I said, what does it teach us about God? And invariably they say this, that God is the author and the giver of life. That is God who says when our days are over. And then finally I'd say something like this for the final question. What does it teach us? How can we apply this to our lives? That we should be generous. And then I would go into the fact that there are two bobs, white men. There are two bobs who are over helping with the, men's, with the people's teeth. I said, they are doing this because unlike some Americans, these men are very generous. They have left their business and they've come to help your people. And, and we walk the Jesus road. And part of the thing when we walk the Jesus road is as Jesus was generous, so a, a way that we walk is that we want to be generous too. And the reason these two bobs have left their practice is because they are showing love and generosity in the name of Jesus Christ. 
And so something like that, and invariably, believe it or not, you ready for this? An average story in a conversation lasted about an hour. An hour. And unlike, guys, Toreg, where you sit there and sort of drink tea and go, what are we going to talk about? It was one hour and sometimes an hour and 15 minutes of nothing but conversation about Jesus. And it was incredible. We had one man uh, pray the prayer to receive Jesus Christ. But as I shared with you, our missionaries are very careful not to just because it's so easy to add Jesus to your God list. And so unless a person was willing to consider being ceremoniously washed, be baptized, they would not consider that a serious decision yet. And sometimes they were honest. They simply say this, we're not ready to make that decision yet. And we saw so many people are just that close to following the Jesus road. And so often, as Annette mentioned, it was because there were believers in there who dramatically lived a life. A guy named Andre for 22 years, was the only believer in the village. And he was considered crazy for a while. He was shunned for a while. He couldn't get food or job in the village. But he endured, he persevered, and now he's a respected man in the village. And I watched his two young fathers said, we want Andre to teach our children. Why do you want Andre to teach your children? Because he is a wise man and because he follows the Jesus road. Isn't that tremendous, guys? It's tremendous. I'm just telling you, that this was such an impactful thing. Personally, personally, Dwayne, personally, how did it affect you? It so impacted me to be able to share Jesus so freely with the people who are so hungry to receive it. Professionally, Dwayne. Dwayne, was it worth you being gone two Sundays? I'm going to look you dead now and tell you it was. It was. For this pastor, it was. Um, it, it touched my life at a new and deeper level than even working with a Toreg did. Now, I will share this with you. I asked Judy. Miller. I said, Judy, what if we'd gone north? What if we'd gone north up into the desert? Would I have had that same freedom? And she said, no. No, you'd be a man of prayer. You'd have gone and they respected you as the gray hair, but you said, what can I pray with you about? And you'd have had a chance to pray. But the story and opportunities would have been much more limited because, because they're much stronger and stricter Muslims the further north you go into the desert region. And that's our Torah friends up in Niger. Now, one of the things I want to close with is the Wednesday um, we were going to leave after we left was Tabaski. And Tabaski is where Muslims celebrate that, that uh, Abraham, Abram, took Ishmael up to the mountain. And there he was about to kill his son Ishmael. And God provided the ram and the thicket. And therefore Ishmael was saved. Now, we know the Bible says something different. We know the Bible says that it was, it was, I, thank you, it was Isaac. Duh. It was Isaac, okay? But they believe it's Ishmael. And the rams that you saw, did you see the rams? There were thousands of rams in Bamako. Herds of rams. And, and, and unless I missed it, between three and six hundred dollars. Families would save all year long and come together, multiple families, scraping money to buy some sort of a ram where they could sacrifice that ram. They would, they would slit the ram's throat, drain the blood into the ground, which is symbolic, and then they would roast and eat the ram and have a celebration. And as we saw these people so sacrificing so they could have a ram and offer it in the name of Allah, uh, it was heartbreaking. It was heartbreaking. Even though they were open to the gospel and we could share openly, they still were so lost and so blind. And so, I want to close with this thought. Can I be real candid with you as your pastor? I try to do this. I, I try to be very transparent with you and authentic. You may like that and you may not. That's okay. Uh, that's who I am. You know, for a long time, for 10 years, we've watched our offerings grow at Dorsbo Baptist Church. And we have become one of the leading giving churches and missions. And um, part of my competitive spirit every year as the pastor Part of the motivation for leading you to give more, give more, was so that we would, we would meet last year's goal and exceed it. The, the wanting to give more, wanting to give more, but too often for the sake of giving more. It wasn't so much being number two in the state. I didn't go that far with it. But the motivation, it seemed, got to be, well, Judy, what was our goal? And let's meet that goal. And then something happened, and it wasn't on this trip. Um, it happened, I think, probably at the Southern Baptist Convention. As we started talking about missions and, and the Great Commission resurgence. And I want you to know something. I'm asking you as your pastor, 
you, you need to dip into the 80%. And for some of you, that 80% is very big. And for some of you, that 80% is very small. But, but we cannot reach these lost people with spare time and spare change. We cannot reach these people with a $20 bill casually dropped in the offering plate. And I'm asking you to dip into your 80%. That, that money that God's left in your control. And, and may cause you to do without something. I don't know. But I'm asking you to give into that so that we make sure we raise that $30,000 goal and beyond. Not so we can meet last year's goal. Because there's a woman named Rita. And Rita's in the master's program. And she makes a minimal salary. She's 53, 42. And she lives there and willing to give her life. And her job is engaging the untouched people groups. Her program is being cut because there's not enough money. And starting in 2012, I believe this, she has to raise her own support. If she's going to stay on the mission field, she's going to be like an independent Baptist missionary. She's going to come home to churches and go around begging churches to support her. And that program was cut because so many dollars are staying in Southern Baptist pockets. That's why it's happening. It's happening because our, our state association gives 42%, which means 42 cents of every dollar moves on out of the state. It's not uncommon in the South for states to keep 80 cents on the dollar. It seems like the larger the church, the, the, the crazier the percentage gets. If you make, make $20,000 a year, I encourage you to give 10%, don't I? Because that's what the Bible teaches. If you make a million dollars a year, all of a sudden that becomes $100,000. And I encourage you to do what's biblical and give 10%. We believe that the cooperative program is our way of tithing. And we give 10.5% to the cooperative program. These large mega churches, 2%, 3%. And they quickly raise their hand. They'll say, but we give $300,000. Yeah, but what's your budget? Four, five, six million? I pray our church, we're going to meet the budget. Wouldn't it be tremendous if we had the courage to raise from 105 to 11% this year? Because see, at least half, 50 cents of the dollar that ultimately ends up at the national level, 50 cents a dollar goes to IMB to share, to keep people in the field, to tell the story of Jesus. So I want to encourage you to give. Our, our journeyman program is in danger. Would you agree with me tonight, Teresa, that if a young college student is willing to give up two years of their life, don't you think we could pay them a minimal salary in their expenses so they can go to Africa or to China or somewhere? Don't you think it's worth that? Don't you think, guys? And yet the program's being cut down and cut down. Why? Because there's no dollars. So I want you to pray about it hard this year. Not so we'll meet our goal. But how many missionaries can we keep on the field? How many missionaries can we send to the field by our faithfulness? I pray you'll reach way down to your 80% and say, God, what would you have me do this year? What would you have me? Would you bow your heads right there? Molly was a tremendous trip. It really was. Haiti was a tremendous trip. It really was. The fields are white under harvest. But I will tell you this. Dwayne, what about the Troy people? Will we get to go back? I really don't know. Right now we're being told for security reasons that door is closed. It may open in, in 2011. We just don't know that. I asked Rita... I said, Rita, do you think the field will close here one day? Because the influence of the north is moving south. How long will this window be open to Maniki people? How long will I be able to go back if you allow me to go back? Or someone else will go back and tell the stories of Jesus? How long before the door is closed? The time is short. It's short on a couple of counts. But the time is short. Let's be obedient and do what God wants us to do. Father, in Jesus' name, I come to you tonight. I really want to thank you, Jesus, that your Christmas, when God made the promise, as we read this morning, He was talking about you. And this week and the next week and the next week and the next week, it was your ultimate sacrifice that you're willing to feel nails and feel the, 
the ripping flesh of a Roman scourge. That she died. That folks like us and folks like them could know you. Father, I pray in Jesus' name that we'll do what we can and do what you direct us to do. Please don't let us be casual about this. May we, Father, be obedient. Thank you for the privilege of going to Mali. Thank you for people like Judy and Rita, Father like Scott and these wonderful young ladies who gave up two years or six months of their lives. One who gave up a scholarship, fully paid to a great university, left it behind to go serve. Thank you, God. Please, Father, help us to honor their sacrifice by doing what we can here. And uh, we praise you in advance, Lord, for what you're going to do. Now, we love you and thank you that we had the chance to share. And Jesus, we ask this in your name. Amen. Now, God's people said, Amen. We have some... Um, Prayer cards down here, the old people's strategy prayer cards. I've only got a couple. Really, Scott, I didn't get a chance to talk about him a lot. Scott was a tremendous young man, 22 years old, brilliant young man. Cal, can you imagine that? I, I, he, he said, well, I'm not sure what I want to do, Dwayne. I, I may come back here and serve here. He said, I may go back and work on the ranch as a cow puncher and as the camp pastor. They have a Christian camp and I'm be a camp pastor. Or I'm trying to stop. I want to go pursue my doctor's degree. Go figure, you know. <laughs> Tremendous young man. You only these cards just remind you to pray for him. We've got a few of those down here. We've got the latest sermon series cards available down here. The ladies, I, we have a budget meeting, so I know we're going to sneak on out here pretty quick. But the ladies will be down front. If you have some questions that you'd like to ask about Molly, I know they would be uh, glad to entertain those questions. Thank you so much for coming. You're dismissed tonight.